Well, uh, I'm glad to see that you've come back after my last sermon, uh, where I passionately told you how wretched you are apart from Christ. Uh, But my last point was God gave Adam and Eve gospel. A vital point about the serpent-crushing offspring of Eve who rose up and conquered Satan for everyone who believes. That last point is essentially the covenant of grace. And this sermon expands that point. Grace. What a powerful and magnificent word. Grace is God's kindness and favor for undeserving covenant breakers. Grace isn't payment. It's gift. If grace could be earned, grace wouldn't be grace. You and I cannot delight in God's grace until we acknowledge our total depravity and utter need of God's grace. If you think yourself a good person, you will trivialize and ignore grace, and it will not be amazing for you. Legalists trivialize grace and exalt themselves. Antinomians trivialize grace and exalt themselves. If you try to earn God's approval and affection by law-keeping, you will not cherish and enjoy grace. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace with conviction because he was painfully aware of his own sinfulness and need of God's grace. That's why he said in the late years of his life, although my memory's fading, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. The dissonance of total human depravity makes the melody of God's amazing grace sweet. The wretch is saved by amazing grace. The lost is found by amazing grace. The blind can see by amazing grace. It is the sweet sound of the covenant of grace that cheers the sullen souls of those who have broken the covenant of works. Covenant or Reformed theology comes down to the three big picture covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Every time NASA uh, puts someone on the moon, math was integral to the mission. Similarly, these three covenants are integral to the entire story of Scripture. The covenant of redemption is the eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit where the Father designs redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption. The covenant of works is the first covenant made with man in which life was promised Adam and in him to his descendants on condition of perfect and personal obedience. The covenant of works, which is still in effect today, promises eternal life for perfect law keepers and threatens eternal punishment for imperfect law breakers. In other words, obey God and live, disobey God and die. Where total human depravity is the problem, the covenant of grace is the solution. The covenant of grace is the storyline of the Bible. The late pastor Calvin Knox Cummings wrote, quote, throughout the entire Bible, there is one underlying message. It is the message of salvation by a redeemer, end of quote. He added, The covenant of grace is the most accurate and comprehensive term to describe that one plan of redemption which runs through the Bible, end of quote. 
Now, you likely know Bible stories and famous Bible verses, but do you know how they all fit together and the main point that they make? The covenant of grace helps you know where Genesis 1-1 is headed and how all the stories and verses along the way advance the covenant of grace towards fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace is key to understanding the Bible. How do you understand books like Leviticus or Numbers or Ezekiel? Well, understanding Genesis 3.15 and the covenant of grace will greatly help you make sense of the most difficult passages in Scripture because you'll know where they're headed. You'll know where they're all pointing, what they're all advancing. So when we come then to other covenants like the Noahic or Abrahamic or Mosaic or Davidic, we know they are progressive expressions of the covenant of grace. And they move us all toward Christ. So, what is the covenant of grace? The covenant of grace is basically the covenant of redemption accomplished in history. It is God's eternal and sovereign plan to rescue a people for himself through his only son who fulfills the eternal redemptive plan. We could say the covenant of works equals law and the covenant of grace equals gospel. Here's a a valuable paragraph from Brown and Keel's book, Sacred Bond, which captures the covenant of grace quite effectively. And I'm going to read it slowly for you so that you can better grasp it. Listen very closely. The covenant of grace is the one covenant through which all believers are saved. It began in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise to send a Savior and runs through redemptive history until Christ's second coming. Although it has been administered differently during different epochs of redemptive history, its substance remains the same in all periods. In other words, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the way in which God saves sinners is always the same, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Christ is the one mediator of the one covenant of grace that unifies the one people of God in all periods of redemptive history. Now, that last sentence is epic. Don't miss it. Christ is the one mediator of the one covenant of grace that unifies the one people of God in all periods of redemptive history. Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets, many within ethnic Israel, the apostles, the churches of Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia were all justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as believers are today. Every believer from Adam to the end of the world is justified by grace, through faith, in the one Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Salvation has never been about works of the law, nor has it been a combination of grace and works of the law. In the old covenant, sinners looked ahead to the Messiah and were saved by faith in his sin-bearing sacrifice. And in the new covenant, sinners look back to the Messiah and are saved by faith in his sin-bearing sacrifice. From the fall on, justification has always been by faith in the Messiah's work of Redemption. 
There are not two peoples of God. There are not two plans of God or or plans of redemption. There is only one people of God and one plan of redemption. And this is the historic and majority view before and after the Reformation. It only began to be challenged in the 19th century. Jesus informed And this has to do with what I just said. Jesus informed first century Jews that Abraham was not their father. Satan was, which echoed Genesis 3.15 and affirmed that true Israel is defined not by nationality, but by faith in the promises of God. Paul agreed with Jesus and wrote in various places that to be a true child of Abraham, to belong to true Israel, is not a matter of nationality, but a matter of faith in the promise of God. The covenant of redemption and the biblical doctrines of predestination and election only further confirm that God has always had one plan of redemption and one people who are redeemed by the one mediator of the one covenant of grace. Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works and plummeted themselves and humanity into sin and misery. But God did not leave them in their sin and misery, but gave them a gospel promise that an offspring, a seed, a son would come who would suffer, yet would conquer Satan's sin and death. Adam failed in the covenant of works, but God graciously established another covenant, one of pure, unmerited grace, one that, to borrow from John T. Rhodes, blazes through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. And this covenant of grace is in effect until Christ returns. In Scripture, from Genesis 3.15 on, the gospel is progressively uncovered in greater detail until it reaches its stunning climax and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Heidelberg Question 19 says that God first revealed the holy gospel in paradise. And that later the gospel was proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. My point, the gospel permeates the Old Testament. From Genesis 3.15 on, the Westminster Confession of Faith explains the covenant of grace really well. It says, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, referring to the covenant of works there, The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, in which he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give to all those who are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Precious. The covenant of works promises life through perfect law-keeping. The covenant of grace promises law-breakers life through faith in the one God-appointed, serpent-crushing, Eve-descended offspring. Don't, Don't the Old and the New Testaments tell us that the righteous shall live by faith? Adam and Eve lost their ability to keep the law perfectly. They traded it for one moment of pleasure. So, 
God established the covenant of grace, which in the old covenant was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances, and is administered in the new covenant much more simply in the preaching of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So then, there is one covenant of grace, one way of salvation, one people of God, but the covenant of grace is administered or dispensed differently in the Old Covenant than it is in the New Covenant. The difference is not the covenant, but the administration of the covenant. And we'll see this more fully later in the series, but that point is crucial in understanding baptism and the Lord's Supper. Reformed theology, as R.C. Sproul rightly noted, says that, quote, the way of salvation in the Old Testament is substantially the same as in the New Testament, end of quote. And if that's biblical, and if that's true, which I believe that it is, covenant theology is confirmed, and competing doctrinal systems fall short. So I hope that that, all that sets us up now to better understand Genesis 3.15. It's among the most important verses in Scripture. In fact, it might be the most important in Scripture. How do you gauge that? I mean, I don't know if that would be true, but it might be because it is the first place that the gospel is preached. Genesis 3.15 is also called the Proto-Euangelion, or the first gospel. After Genesis 3.15, the covenant of grace is progressively revealed, making the gospel clearer and clearer until it is seen in full view in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to Genesis 3.15 again. God said these words directly to the serpent as Adam and Eve listened in. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." That's gospel. It's basic, but it's the gospel. It was the sound of sweet, amazing grace for Adam and Eve in the horrifying aftermath of their sin. So let's unpack verse 15. Five simple observations. Number one, the Lord God graciously put enmity between Satan and Eve. God responded graciously. Eve was deceived. Adam went along with it. Adam and Eve joined the snake in rebellion against God. And with the promise of death looming, God graciously put enmity or hostility between the serpent and Eve. God broke Adam and Eve's communion with evil. Adam and Eve broke covenant with God. They covenanted with the snake. And yet God was pleased to break their allegiance with evil in order to enter into another covenant, one of grace. Now there would be antagonism between the serpent and the woman. That was gospel. But there was more. Number two, the Lord God graciously put enmity between Satan and Eve's one offspring. Now, this gets a little tricky. you got to pay attention here. Eve has physical offspring, Satan doesn't. Okay, let's not get weird on this. That would take us into weird places. So there are layers of meaning here in verse 15. You've got to study it closely. That being said, offspring is singular in verse 15. But, 
This is tricky. It could be the singular or collective meaning. As in one descendant offspring or one group of many descendants offspring. Offspring can mean either. When her offspring is followed by he shall bruise, it implies that there is at least a singular sense to her offspring. So Eve knew that there would be enmity between Satan and her, but also between Satan and one of her sons, the son who would conquer Satan. Eve heard God's promise that she would have offspring And among them would be the one champion son. And there would exist enmity between him and Satan. That was gospel. Galatians 4.4 alludes to this when Paul said that Jesus Christ, God's son, was born of woman. And this term offspring or seed is a continuing theme in Genesis. And all of scripture, we'll see it again most importantly in the Abrahamic covenant. The concept of offspring is vital in understanding the entire story of Scripture. Number three, the Lord God graciously put enmity between Satan and those who are in Eve's one offspring. Here is the collective sense of offspring in verse 15. One group of many descendants. The the collective sense helps us make sense of Satan's offspring as well. From this point on, there would be two groups of people. One, the offspring of Satan or rebellious unbelievers. And two, the offspring of Eve, which in one sense is humanity, but more particularly is believers. From Genesis 3.15 on, throughout history, there would be division and animosity between God's unbelieving enemies and God's believing children. In John 8.44, Jesus said, of a certain group of Jews, descendants of Abraham, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They were physical offspring of Abraham. They were Jews, yes, Yet Jesus called them the offspring of Satan in a spiritual sense because why? Their unbelief. Their unbelief. What do we see in Genesis 4? This was fascinating studying this this week. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. Why? Because Abel was a man of faith and was righteous in God's sight and Cain was not. Cain didn't worship God by faith. The very first children of Adam and Eve began the fulfillment of verse 15. Same thing with Noah versus the world, Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, the nations versus Israel. And I say in this point, number three, those who are in Eve's offspring to emphasize the difference between unbelievers who are allied with Satan and believers who are united to Christ by their faith. There is enmity between these two distinct groups, and don't mishear me to say that Christians should hate unbelievers. That's not my point. There is tension. There's a reason why Andrew Brunson is in jail in Turkey for his faith. There's animosity there. There's tension. They don't like the gospel. The terms your offspring and her offspring show the distinction between the world and the church. 
What is the church but a gathered community of people whom God separates and distinguishes from the world, a worshiping community marked by faith in God's promises, and that has existed from the Garden of Eden on. Number four, the Lord God graciously promised that Eve's one offspring would conquer Satan. I love this point. There must be a singular sense to offspring because verse 15 adds, he shall bruise your head, which unquestionably refers to the victory of the one seed, the one child, the one son who would rise to crush Satan once and for all. One commentator said it really well, the serpent has a limited life expectancy that will come to a violent end. That's good. Yes, that's true. And it would be Eve's seed who would bring that violent end. It dawned on me this week. Sometimes I can be such an idiot. But Satan isn't omniscient. Why wasn't I picking up on that before? He didn't know the whole story. It wasn't like he knew where all this was going. He only knows what God reveals to him. Satan heard for the first time in the garden about the one champion seed who would rise to crush him. A terrifying reality for Satan that he has to still exist with and gospel for Adam and Eve. And get this, this is fascinating. Love it. Genesis 4.1 says, now Adam, and, now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Why did Eve say that? Could this son have been the promised offspring? Then Abel was born, and Cain killed him, proving neither was the offspring. Now listen to what Eve said in Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Could Seth be the promised offspring? Adam and Eve were waiting, they were longing, they were looking forward to that one offspring who would come. They believed God. They believed His promises. They trusted. They hoped in God. Now, can you see how from the very beginning, the story was escalating to Christ? From the beginning of time. And you're going to love this connection. Come on, people. Get stirred up about this. You're going to love this one. Consider again the collective sense of offspring that all believers are offspring by union with Christ. Listen to this. Romans 16, 20. Paul tells the, the Roman church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet. Christ is the conqueror who crushed Satan. But because Christians are one with Christ by faith, Satan is crushed beneath their feet as well. How's that for a covenant promise? How's that for a covenant blessing? Brothers and sisters, we are more than conquerors because we are united with the victorious serpent slayer, Jesus Christ. Number five, 
The Lord God graciously promised that Eve's one offspring would be injured in his victory. God did tell Satan, and you will bruise his heel. Would you rather have a Louisville slugger to the heel or to the head? I choose heel. I choose heel. The other option is frightening. It sounds like some awful, violent mafia movie or something. God promised suffering for the one offspring, but not final defeat. His victory would include pain. Adam and Eve knew that the one seed that came from their union would suffer a blow from Satan, but he'd still win. He'd still come out on top. The cross, my friends, brothers and sisters, the cross. Jesus Christ was slaughtered on the cross, but the cross was merely a blow to his heel. Yes, he died. Yes, it may have seemed at the time like it was a crush to his head, but Satan and death could not hold him. Three days later, Jesus emerged from the tomb, therein crushing the serpent's head. The seed slayed the serpent. Jesus won the war. He fulfilled the gospel promise made to Adam and Eve and every one of their descendants who trust in the gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the gospel of the serpent-crushing seed, the snake-stomping son who suffers but conquers in the end. What is significant about Adam naming the woman Eve? Never saw this before. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve, do you know what that means? Mother of all living. Why weren't Adam and Eve dead? And what's going on with the woman's name? Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, Adam named Eve after hearing the gospel preached. From Eve would come offspring, the one and the many united to the one. She would give birth to humanity, but even more to the one covenant people of God. Not only would the Messiah come from Eve, but the family of God would come from her as well. From the offspring of Eve, God would adopt many as his own children, as many as he appointed to eternal life before the ages began. Adam exercised faith in the gospel by naming the woman Eve. Also, don't miss that in Genesis 4.1, Adam and Eve obeyed God by sleeping together and having a son. They believed and they repented and they obeyed God's command to be fruitful and multiply, obedience which would result in the rise of the serpent-crushing offspring. What is significant about God clothing Adam and Eve in animal skins? Adam expressed faith in verse 20, and then in verse 21, God killed animals to cover Adam and Eve's guilt and shame. Get this, something had to die in order to cover Adam and Eve's guilt and shame. Blood needed to be shed to cover Adam and Eve's guilt and shame. Why is that significant? Why do we even care about that? About clothing, fashion, in like the beginning of time? Fashion was very important in the beginning of time. Adam and Eve's clothes foreshadowed for them substitutionary atonement where death is needed to cover sin, guilt, and shame. Adam and Eve's clothes foreshadowed the gospel. When we study Genesis 3.15 and the surrounding verses around that, we hear about sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. 
we see the establishment of a gracious covenant, one that will unfold in greater detail as the redemptive story progresses, a covenant through which all believers receive the benefits of God's grace. So if we were to summarize the covenant of grace in one biblical statement, the best candidate would be an idea that shows up a bunch of times in Scripture. Here's the one summary statement of the covenant of grace. This, I think, captures the whole thing. I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament. It is restated and echoed in the New Testament and and gloriously consummated at the time of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, 2 and 3. Just listen to this. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Where is God's promise in Genesis 3.15 headed? It was headed to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to the glorification of Jesus Christ and with him all God's redeemed people who will enjoy God's eternal presence in the new heaven and the new earth. That was God's redemptive plan all along from before the world even began. Humanity's failure in the covenant of works only serves to exalt the power and the grace and the glory of the covenant of grace. The greatest benefit believers receive in the covenant of grace is belonging to God and glorifying and enjoying Him forever. So let me ask you, what does this gospel do inside you? How do you respond to this? Does this excite you? Does this move you? How do you respond to this? How does the covenant of grace benefit you? Why should you be happy about this? Well, benefit comes through faith. So first, before the covenant of grace benefits you, the condition of the covenant of grace must be met in you. You must have faith in Christ alone. The benefits of the covenant of grace are yours only if you are united to the mediator of the covenant by faith. Martin Luther said, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Luther said, he is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. The benefits of the covenant of grace are incalculable, and yet you have them all when you receive by faith the merits of the one offspring who rose to fulfill the covenant of works and conquer the serpent for you. You are not righteous because you are inherently good and do so much for God and others. You are righteous because Christ has done everything for you and gifted you granted you his righteousness. It is purely by the merits of Christ imputed to you by faith that you will one day take and eat from the tree of life. The tree of life. 
you will not have earned that taste. Christ will have given you that taste. How does the covenant of grace benefit believers? Salvation. Everyone who believes the covenant promises of God is saved from their sin. The champion seed who crushed the head of Satan rescued you. You are rescued from the curse of the broken covenant. Assurance. Many Christians lack assurance and comfort, I believe, in salvation because they focus on the strength of their faith, of their commitment, of their determination instead of focusing on God's promises and his ability to save through the merits of Christ alone. Christ is our assurance in the covenant of grace. Rest. Striving to obey the covenant of works in order to earn God's acceptance is exhausting and impossible. The covenant of works, it's still in place. It's not done away with. God still demands perfect obedience. But it's not your way to God. The covenant of grace allows believers to rest in Christ, to find repose in the merits of his grace, and to live by strength that he provides by his spirit. Rest. Rest for the soul. Gratitude. The covenant of grace creates deep thankfulness in believers. They enjoy what Christ has won for them. They are grateful to receive from God. Thankfulness for the active and passive obedience of Christ motivates them to greater obedience. Believers don't obey to be accepted. They obey because they are accepted and they long to express their love and their gratitude to their heavenly Father. Freedom. The covenant of grace liberates. The shackles of sin and misery and death release, and believers are free to walk by the Spirit in love of God and others and obedience to God's law. Joy. Jesus told his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, I love this, full. Full joy. You're not missing out. Joy. To possess Jesus Christ is to possess the fullness of joy. We receive indestructible joy from God through faith in Christ. Understanding. Understanding. Covenant theology allows you to see most vividly the person and work of Christ and how all the Bible is about him. Brown and Keel state this, quote, the covenant of grace teaches us that the whole Bible is about one thing, God redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ, end of quote. That's what it's all about, the whole thing. Without the anchor of covenant theology, there is a great temptation for Christians to know Bible stories, to know a lot of verses, but then to have very little knowledge and idea of how those stories and verses fit together and what they're actually saying collectively as a whole. Edmund Clowney said, quote, it is possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story, end of quote. That's good stuff. Very possible and Happens all the time in Christians in, in the church. The covenant of grace reveals that all Scripture tells one amazing story of God's redemptive grace in Christ, the champion offspring. God makes a, a promise in the covenant of grace. I want to end with this. Who's the promise for? Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful realization to come to Peter's sermon at Pentecost and to hear him say, 
for the promise. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The world doesn't have the promise. The church has the promise. The church has the promise. The multi-ethnic church, the church from all nations and all times has the promise. And so believers and their children can enjoy this promise together, can cling to this promise together as long as the condition of faith in Christ is met. Then all the benefits of the covenant of grace are theirs in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this message of Genesis 3.15 is marvelous grace. It is amazing grace. It is the gospel from the beginning of time. There is a seed who will come from Eve's descendants. And he did come. God's son in human flesh, born of a woman who rose to conquer the Satan, but he suffered, and he suffered the cross. God, the Old Testament believers, Abraham, he's our brother in Christ. He looked forward to the coming Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. He had promises to cling to, God's gospel promises, and he was justified by faith. Paul is very clear about that, God. Thank you that we have such a cloud of witnesses, that we have brothers and sisters from all ages who have been faithful to believe in the gospel promises of you, our Father. And I pray, God, that you would give clarity to our church in these things. These these sometimes are complicated things for simpletons like us. You are an infinite God, And yet you reveal these things. And in childlike faith, we can receive them and say, yes, I have everything in Christ. Thank you that he is our fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And that by faith in him, we are promised eternal life. We are promised that Satan will not have the last word, but Christ does. And he will exalt us with him. We will be exalted with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, everyone who believes. God, I thank you for the family. I thank you that this promise, this gospel promise is for our children. I pray for all the children here today that they will hear this message loud and clear. For those children here that have been baptized and have the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, that they would look to their baptism and say, if I believe this promise is for me. And that they would never forget that their baptism has set them apart. They have marked as part of the church. And God, the gospel promise is for them. I pray for families, God, that they would trust in these gospel promises and that they would see that though the covenant was administered differently in the Old Testament, now it is administered through the preaching which they are sitting under and it's administered by baptism and administered by the Lord's Supper. So may we value and and love and cherish your means of grace for us where the gospel is communicated. Thank you, God. For what you are doing at Jerusalem Church, give us unity, give us peace, give us love for one another, and help us to work through these things with much patience and grace, uh, showing that our ultimate goal and aim is to love you and to be faithful to your word. For the sake of your son, we pray. Amen.